So we turn to Psalm 81. We're almost done. We have 82 and 83, and then maybe a little conclusion, and and we're done. Um, So um, Psalm 80 and Psalm 81 kind of form a pair. They go together. Um, And um, uh, this, together with Psalm 50, remember where we started, uh, have been called prophetic psalms as far as their genre, so I've been trying to get you used to the form uh, in which the psalms are packaged. Uh, There's a lot of uh, the chief duty of the prophets, even though they emphasize all the various aspects of the covenant, um, so not only the preamble, I am the Lord your God, uh, not only the stipulations, um, do this, not only the historical prologue, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh, but especially the sanctions. So remember, I've been emphasizing those can be positive, do this and you will live, or they can be negative, do this and you'll be cursed. So the, the, the prophets were especially like covenant lawyers, okay? So they, they prepare their briefs. Sometimes they speak immediately before the king or the people, but often they're preparing their briefs over a long period of time, and then they come and they bring lawsuit against the king, uh, often earlier prophets and then later prophets against the people. Around about the 8th century, there's a turn from the court to the community. And, uh, and, and so you can think of them uh, often as uh, lawyers uh, bringing a lawsuit based upon the broken stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant especially. But they're also heralds of the New Covenant. So sometimes they uh, appeal back to the Abrahamic Covenant and, and talk about um, the Messiah to come in the golden age, so to speak, when God will initiate and accomplish what the people have failed to do. Uh, so anyway, uh, Lauren was asking me about um, uh, Hegel this morning, about which I know almost any, nothing. And then, uh, but um, I open up with this quote from Martin Heidegger, uh, another philosopher, uh, who um, had a very tumultuous personal life. He was deeply connected with Nazism. And um, so anyway, he um, also is one of these philosophers who thought God was absent. Um, So he comments that this is an age in which God is absent. In the opening paragraph, I talked about that. So he warns against the religion in general, and especially the Hebrew prophets, for he says, quote, they do not begin by foretelling the word of the holy. They announce immediately the God upon whom the certainty of salvation in a supernatural uh, blessedness reckons. So he's actually landing upon those places where there is this messianic hope communicated in the prophets, especially the 8th century major prophets, about a new covenant to come, about a Messiah to come. Uh, Martin Buber, a, ju- uh, a Jewish man, takes him to task on that uh, in this quote that I gave there. He says, I have never in our time encountered on a high philosophical plane such a far-reaching misunderstanding of the prophets of Israel. <laughs> uh, the prophets of this, like, you know, two tell of the Huns getting in the uh, ring together. Uh, the prophets of Israel have never announced a God upon whom their hearers striving for security reckoned. They've always aimed to shatter all security and to proclaim 
in the opened abyss of the final insecurity, the unwished for God who demands that as human creatures become real, that they become human, confounds all who imagine uh, that they can take refuge in the certainty that the temple of God is in their midst. Uh, there's an allusion to Jeremiah. The temple, the temple, the temple. You know, they cry, we're safe because we have the, the temple. Uh, this is the God of the historical demand as the prophets of Israel beheld him. Uh, the primal rea uh, reality of these prophecies does not allow itself to be tossed into the attic of religions. It is as living and actual as this historical hour uh, as ever. So in short, um, he's saying that uh, Heidegger uh, should spend more time in the Bible and less time in philosophy, I think. Uh, so, uh, um, but he's really saying they don't understand this prophetic lawsuit nature of the prophets. So I want you to hear both. Uh, the prophets actually do introduce what we call an arc of tension. Um, so a big question is, so when they promise these grandiose, you know, like think of Isaiah 40 through 55 all the way up to 66 about the new Jerusalem and, and the Messiah that will come. So does the return from exile fulfill those prophetic hopes? That's a big question. Um, and uh, the answer is no, not ultimately, because nothing like the former temple really comes to be and nothing like uh, David as a king really comes to be until the new David, uh, namely David's greater son Jesus, comes to be. So, so anyway, um, they're wrestling over that. <clears throat> but it fit nicely for the absence theme of the silence of God. So I think as you think about this, you ought to think about this as prophetic indictment or judgment, and that will help you to understand uh, what's going on here, or prophetic liturgical style, I, I call it. Then at the bottom of the first page, I quote this English evangelical author, Derek Kidner, who says about this psalm, it is Meribah education is by silence an apparent neglect. So... What he means by that is there's references to, to the rebellion in the wilderness that we know about from Exodus and Numbers at Meribah where the people were rebelling and, and protesting and, and uh, remember uh, Moses gets a little impatient with them to put it lightly and strikes the rock twice from which the water gushes forth and later he's rebuked by God uh, for that. But that's the incident to which uh, this... Um, psalm alludes, and um, it's striking in the psalm how many times um, the word for here comes up. So this is, this is it in Hebrew, Shema, which you might recognize Shema uh, as um, this is, hear, O Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that's the Shema, which is, for the Jews, like uh, the Apostles' Creed. This is their creed. So if, if a person isn't taken out tragically at death, this is the first thing when, when a baby is able to speak that they're uh, taught and told to recite. And, and then the last thing uh, that a man is supposed to take on his lips at death as well. So here, I'll teach it to you. It's really easy. Ready? Shema Yisrael. Oh, come on now. Shema Yisrael. 
Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Okay, so Shema Yisrael. Good. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. So what that means is, Shema means here. Okay, so there it's in the imperative. Here, O Israel. It's in the vocative. So, Shema Yisrael, here, O Israel. Adonai Eloheinu, the Lord, our God. The Lord, you probably heard the repetition of Adonai, the Lord is one. And there's a lot of ink spilled over what that means. Um, so probably it means don't believe what all the pagans believe about a multiplicity of gods. Our God is one God, and so they're enjoining, Moses is enjoining um, the um, monotheism there. Okay, So Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one, okay? Not like the Baal prophets who believe in a pantheon. Uh, not like over there in Babylon where they also believe in a, in a multiplicity of gods. But our God is one and the only true God. But look at the top of the second page. This occurs uh, in uh, verse 8. The people are commanded to hear, hear, Shema, O my people, and I will admonish you. Uh, if you would not listen, Shema. Verse 11, it occurs, but my people did not listen, Shema, to my voice. Verse 13, it occurs, the divine voice is represented here, crying out, oh, that my people would listen, Shema, uh, that Israel would walk my way. So this is a, this is a major theme in this, in this passage, uh, in this psalm, okay? It's striking how often uh, that comes up, okay? So... In the beginning, we'll walk through this psalm and see what it has to teach us. This is a relatively short uh, paper, so uh, maybe we'll emerge into something else uh, where there's allusions to Masa and Meribah and not listening as well that will fit together with us. But. So notice the summons to rejoice. Um, <clears throat> so he starts off, Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Lift up a song, lift up a timbrel to be heard, the beautiful lyre with the harp, sound the horn at the new moon, at the new moon on the day of the feast. Okay, so the tone here is ebullient. It's rejoicing, okay? And the challenge to uh, sing, to rejoice here, uh, can be found in other places in the Hebrew Bible where you get a lot of introits uh, to, you know, beckon to sing and to celebrate. It's probably uh, the feast here. It's probably the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, uh, Sukkot. Uh, so this is where they remember their pilgrimage annually uh, through the wilderness and how God was good to them. Um, so um, uh, you would be struck if you lived in a place. I suppose you can find places in San Diego like this where you have a high concentration of Jewish people. But where we lived in Washington, D.C., Maryland, Silver Spring, there was only next to New York the second highest concentration of Jewish people. So they would move into these neighborhoods, and they would all buy houses or townhouses, and then they would build their synagogues in these neighborhoods too, um, so that they didn't have to drive uh, on Shabbat, Saturday, to the synagogue, they would walk. So you'd see them out there, rain, shine, snow, whatever, 
with their you know black coats and their and their black top hats and their tassels and and uh, everything else uh, walking uh, to synagogue on Shabbat. My my boys grew up in a neighborhood where we lived in a townhouse the last part of our time back there uh, that um, was one of these neighborhoods. So we would always hear um, the Jewish mother yelling at their sons, you know, as they're out playing in the, I'm not kidding, playing in the snow, and it's like, Johnny, put your kippah back on, you know, because the kippah had fallen off. And uh, so that's what my boys grew up with. But my point is, when Tabernacles Feast of Booze comes around, they set up booze out in their driveway. So you drive around in Silver Spring, and there'd be, you know, for a week, they would set these up, and uh, you'd see them everywhere. And so they take this very seriously, okay? And that's probably what's being uh, referred to here. Um, now, there's been many interpretations of this difficult phrase, maybe when you heard it, um, uh, where I heard a language that I did not know or had not heard, excuse me, in verse 5. There's different interpretations of this. Calvin thought it alluded to the language of the Egyptians. So when they were, again, all these psalms are very connected with and integral with the Exodus and appeals to the Exodus, so maybe it was the Egyptians. Uh, others have identified it as the unknown, uh, unknown voice of God that they heard when they were marching through the wilderness. A lot of more recent Psalms scholars attach this to the prophetic word at the end of the Psalm. So uh, from verse 7 on, there's a prophetic indictment here, and so in an uh, anticipatory way, uh, the psalmist may be alluding or hinting at what's coming up. So then you get a summons to remember. Uh, If you look at verses 6 through 10, this is my translation, or you can follow along the ESV. I've taken away his shoulder from the burden. His palms were passed over, meaning liberated. They're set free from the burden basket. In distress you called. I delivered you. I answered you in storm theophany. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And then there's a pause. We don't know what this selah means for sure, but it was probably some kind of sesura in the music, some kind of pause. Hear my people, and I will testify against you. O Israel, if you would only listen to me, Shema, Uh, There would be no strange God among you, and you must not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide uh, so that I may fill it. Okay? So this is interesting at this event. It's focusing on and hearkening back to the Exodus liberation. Okay? And the testing at Meribah. Uh, You remember Numbers 14 and 20. Okay? So... Last week, I think it was last week, I was talking about a literary term uh, where uh, people uh, in literature or uh, in an audience, uh, a little elusive word is meant to um, trigger uh, in the human mind uh, a recollection of a bigger event or a full context in a previous piece of literature. Anybody remember what that word was? Aha. I'll just reteach it. That's right. It starts with an M. Good job. It's called uh, metalepsis. And so all it means is, like here, okay, there's an obvious allusion to the rebellion at Meribah and at Massa when the people rebelled. 
And so it's subtle, but it's there and it's clear. And in, in Jewish circles, they might not use this word, but this is what they're doing, um, there's an expectation uh, that everybody has a kind of illusion competence. Okay? I mean, they're people of the book, even more so than us. You know, okay? Belts and suspenders, OPC people. And, uh, and I'll throw the uh, URC in there too. All right? uh, so uh, they, they hear these triggers, and then they would think uh, of the larger context. Okay? So they hear Meribah, and they'd be thinking the larger context of number 14, numbers 20, uh, Exodus 17. Okay? So it brings in that fuller narrative. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so, um, so anyway, um, here um, it's being alluded to, the part for the whole. Okay? And this kind of illusion competence is one of the earmarks of Jewish education, which is not just at school. They would go at night, especially the men, you know, to these places where they'd study. That's what they do, okay? And, you know, they'd study uh, the book and the books about the book, okay? And um, so anyway, what the psalmist has done here is um, alluded to Psalm 95 very deftly, uh, not like deaf, deaf, but uh, adroitly, okay? Uh, and um, that's, that's what uh, he's doing, similar to how the book of Hebrews uses this in chapters uh, 3 and 4 as well. And if we have time, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how uh, the writer to Hebrews does something similar to refer back to the rebellion at Meribah and Massa. Okay? Uh, but then you have this summons to repent in verses 11 to 16. So if you have the paper, you can read there. You can follow along in, in your Bible. My people did not listen to my voice. So again, notice, Shema. They did not listen. And Israel would not yield to me. So I sent him in the recalcitrance of their hearts so that they walked according to their own ways. If my people hearkened to me and Israel would walk in my ways, immediately I would subdue their enemies. I would turn my hand against their distressors. Those who hate the Lord would have to submit to him and their time will be forever. He would feed them with the fat of wheat from the rock. I would satisfy you with honey. Isn't that interesting? So I didn't even really think about this, even as I was preparing for this class, but this reemphasizes what James already is emphasizing. God is good, and he longs to be open-handed in his generosity towards his people. Uh, so... Um, so this is very similar to the writer to Hebrews treatment of Psalm uh, 95 here. Um, but Psalm 81 points out two choices, either life with Yahweh or death with Adam. Uh, Psalm 81 in the last sentence presents options uh, for life, the option for life. So uh, notice the grace of the divine resource at the end. He gives the best. He brings sweetness out of that which is harsh. Forbidding, holy, unpromising. Uh, it's like Jesus says, Take my yoke in Matthew 11 upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My yoke is easy, as opposed to the Pharisees who are you know, drawing these big circles around the law, that, making other laws so you don't infringe upon the true law. Okay? And, uh, so, but as opposed to that, God's yoke is easy and His burden is light. So, uh, Psalm 81, interestingly enough, occurs uh, at the very center of the Psalter. So remember, there's five books in the Psalter. 
verses 1 to 2. So if you just look, like uh, if you turn to uh, Psalm 42, you'll see uh, that this is the end of book 1, and then book 2 begins at 43 to 72. It goes from there. Book 3 is a little shorter. It goes 73 to 89. And then book 4, 90 to 106. And then book 5 is 107 to 150. So what's interesting here is we are at the very center of the Psalter. And the people's problem is in verse 8, highlighted, there's a crisis of listening on the part of the Hebrews. Okay? So this is important to grasp. If verse 8 is the center of the psalm and occurs in the center of book 3 of the Psalter, then perhaps the central message or appeal of the entire Psalter is for people to listen, uh, or else dire consequences will fall your way. As Bob Godfrey Sr. has written in his book on the Psalms, God has taken away their king, their temple, their lands, but God has not utterly abandoned them. He still declares in the psalm that he will listen and he will bless them. Um, so the promise is not discouraging. It's meant to be encouraging, as Godfrey says. Ultimately, the Psalter and the whole Bible teach that God must provide a king and a substitute who will do for the people uh, what they cannot do uh, for themselves. Um, so and that's exactly what Jesus did when he was born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem us from our sins and to make us sons of God. Okay, So he's the king that outstrips David. He's the greater than Moses who brings the second exodus to deliver the people. Um, and uh, he's the needed uh, righteous king. So Jesus is the king, as I quote at the end, who always listened and always did the will of God. Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7, quotes Psalm 40, different psalm, verse 68, and applies it to Jesus. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. At the transfiguration of Jesus, the Father declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, The Father in this place also said to Jesus' disciples, Listen to him. That is, listen to the good news that he brings for sinners. So, when... um, uh, when, when, when they identify that, basically what they're doing is they're understanding that this is the new preeminent prophet. Okay? So if we were to take time, I don't want to right now, but if you want to later, you could do this. When you look back to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 through 2021, 20, that's the passage that sets up the whole office of prophet. For Moses. So Moses is the paradigm prophet. And then they're commanded to listen to him. And then um, Peter and other disciples at the transfiguration, right? Moses and Elijah come down and they talk about Jesus' exodon, according to uh, uh, Luke, about his, it's not departure, that's what most of your English Bibles say. They're talking about his exodus. <laughs> Jesus' exodus that now far outstrips Moses. And isn't it interesting? So then um, um, at the transfiguration, um, <clears throat> what do they hear? Uh, listen to him. Okay, So he's the fulfillment of that office of prophet now. 
and uh, they're commanded to listen uh, to him, to his son. All right, so um, I think that's all I want to do by way of surveying the psalm at this point. Any questions? Comments? Yes? Real, real loud, Paul. So the, so the question is, I'm going to repeat your question so it picks up on the mic. Uh, so the question is, do Jewish people see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament uh, like unto when we witness to them? Uh, and the an- simple answer is no, not as uh, part of the Godhead who's equal in substance and power and glory you know, with the other persons of the Godhead, namely uh, Jesus and the Father. So it depends on what Jewish person you're talking to, how they're going to understand the Spirit, you know, passages that talk about the Spirit and, and the uh, outpouring of the Spirit, but they're not going to think about it as, as uh, one of the persons of the Godhead who is um, equal in substance and power with Jesus and the Father. So one of the earliest Christian apologists was um, Justin Martyr, and he had a lot of contact with Jewish people. Trifo the Jew is one of his famous documents that we have from the patristic period. And so he's often called the first apologist. So uh, he tries to use a lot of passages uh, arguing from a Trinitarian perspective against his friend Trifo the Jew. So he's trying to evangelize them. Okay, so... Can I ask you a favor again? Would you be my paper monitor? All right, and hand out one of those. Yep, fire away. (laughs) That's a great question, Kim. Uh, So, um, I don't know. I have it before uh, publisher now, InterVarsity Academic, InterVarsity Press, who has published me uh, before, and um, so, um, but my editor retired last year. In fact, my book on the Exodus was the last one that he, uh, that he got through the channels after four decades. And then he retired, and then he handed me off to another person. And uh, so I've been in dialogue with her, and the book's before them. And so far, all I get a response is, oh, no, I haven't forgotten. I'm just so busy. I'm so swamped. And uh, so... The machinery of the publishing world grinds more slowly than the machinery of the church. <laughs> and it's a lot about money, to be honest. So maybe, Anna, don't listen to this if you're, you know, that is, uh, so, um, yeah, it is, it is a long process. And, you know, this, this is kind of specialized. You've got a standalone book on, on the Asaphic Psalms. You know, as an Old Testament scholar, when you go to these publishers and you say, hey, I want to publish a standalone, so not in a commentary series or whatever, well, you can just see, you know, the, 
the, the deer before the headlights, you know, because they're, they're going, hmm, I wonder how many this is going to sell. And uh, I, it's sad, but, you know, I understand they have to feed their families too, and so it's, it, it is an economic issue. I have other people that are interested in it, so if, uh, if I get to the point I say fish or cut bait and they're not willing to fish, then I'll just go to another publisher. I'm not a, hopefully my colleagues who are self-published are not listening to this. I'm not a big fan of self-publishing. I think books need an editor, and they need a marketing department, and um, you know the whole professional aspect. And probably from the standpoint of the seminary, it's it's better to have it published with a recognized publishing house than self-published. So I guess that's what I've done here. I've self-published it. And uh, as you know, I get nothing from this, but that's okay. I'm not asking for anything. I'm just glad it can be useful. All right, so let's do this. Uh, maybe in the closing time is, um, I don't know, part of the answer that I've received back is it's too academic, you know? And it's like, uh, well, okay. Uh, but, you know, there's illustrations in there from modern writers and movies, and there's questions at the end, and, and um, I don't know. I'm a big fan of ministers being educators like they used to be. And so get a dictionary out, open up the dictionary if you don't know a word, and, and read, uh, you know, and, and plow through this. And if you don't understand, ask somebody else in your small group to help explain it, you know. And so, but I'm probably an idealist that will never get published again. So anyway, uh, <laughs> so anyway, so since we talked about Meribah, okay, and I'll teach you in the remaining 10 minutes, and if, don't get frustrated if you don't get this first time through. But part of what I've been trying to do in this is to help you understand um, how to read your scriptures better. And when I say that illusion competence, so understanding how, you know, for a Jewish boy or girl to understand their history and how one book of the Bible might be referring to another book of the Bible and then invoking uh, a bigger story, that, that's really part of their understanding. And um, and it's very important to, I think, that, so that rubs off into Scripture. So even our confessions talk about how do you understand difficult parts of Scripture by going to clearer parts of Scripture. So Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, so let's do this. Um, I'll show you and explain this. I'm not trying to teach you math. Um, I'd never try and do that, especially with Kelly here. Um, so, um, but let's do this. Um, this little thing that kind of looks like math is not math, uh, but it's a way of talking about this illusion competence. So let me read, turn to Hebrews, because Hebrews is doing something very similar to this psalm in referring to the rebellion at, at Massa and Meribah. So I'll see if I can explain this um, and have it cohere. You may, you may need to walk away with this and um, meditate on it some more later, or I can come back and explain some more next week. <clears throat> but, so, if we had time, we would pick up earlier. So, first of all, Hebrews, 
the writer to Hebrews is concerned for this congregation because they're going back to the old ways. They're wanting to return to their Jewish roots and to the old ways and, and Sinai and all these things, and even after the Messiah has come. And so they're at risk of apostasy for doing this. In fact, it sounds like some have already apostatized. So when you get to Hebrews 6, and he's talking about some have partaken of the Holy Spirit, meaning they've sat in church, they've partaken of the sacrament, they've listened to preaching and that kind of thing. Uh, but they want to go back so much to the old ways and not believe in the Messiah who has come that they're really in danger. And so, so now he goes through, um, and if we had time we could show, he, he's quoting Psalm 95 uh, from chapter 3, verse 7. He starts out with this comparison between Moses and Christ in chapter 3. Then he goes to Psalm 95. And then we don't have time to hear all of it, but you can probably see in your Bible there how he's quoting Psalm 95. And then he uses Psalm 95 again. So in verse chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So notice the same kind of parallel about listening, okay? Um, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Well, that's a direct citation of Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. Well, he knows darn well what he's alluding to here. He's alluding to Genesis 2.2. But he's saying... Somewhere somebody said something, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. mm-hmm. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Close quote. And again in the passage, they shall not enter into my rest. So that's Psalm 95. And then he says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, today, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, Uh, So long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given rest, in other words, real rest, in the land of Canaan, God would not have spoken about another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. Okay. So you can see how he's quoting Psalm 95, but he does something very interesting here. So now take this piece of paper, and I'll try and explain to you what he does. Every text in the scripture has what we call, at the top, intratextual coherence. In other words, let's say you're on a desert island, and all you have is Hebrews. And you read Hebrews... You can understand Hebrews with the help of the Holy Spirit without having the whole rest of the Bible. So that's Hebrews alone. Okay? But every text, this applies to literature generally, but also to Scripture, has intertextual coherence too. In other words, if we have the whole Bible and we're stranded on a desert island, and we see a quote like this, we're going to go from a thinner description to a thicker description 
if we look at how the author is alluding to the earlier passage, right? Because that's going to open up our minds to his, you know, what he's trying to communicate in his sense-making, okay? Uh, so all the text here, um, so this comes from a conference paper that um, I was doing. Some of you may have even been there um, on, on a fuller explanation of all this. But since we're doing Psalm 81, and since what the writer is doing here in Hebrews 3 and 4 is very similar to that, I thought I'd just um, try and show you this. Okay, so, so here, let me explain the numbers. T1, so look there, is the quotation text. In other words, that's Hebrews 4 that we just read. Okay? Over on the right, the big box. See that? Okay, and then um, notice Q1 is the quotation that he cites. So he cites here Psalm 95, little pieces of it. But he also cites Genesis 2.2. And then he goes back to Psalm 95. Okay, so that's on the box over on the right-hand side. Uh, T2 is the pretext to which the quotation belongs. So in this case, that would be Psalm 95. Okay? So that's the first text, therefore the pretext, from which he's nabbing a piece and inserting it in Hebrews 4. Does that make sense? Okay. It gets more interesting. So Q2 is the quotation text. So if we were going back to Hebrews 3, he would have taken the whole of, almost the whole of Psalm 95, not the whole, but almost the whole block. Here in Hebrews 4, he's taking a piece of Psalm 95 twice. You can see that in your Bibles. Okay? And so that Q2, back in the pretext, now he slides over and he's going to insert it in his narrative and his dialogue. So that now becomes Q1 in the sense of that he's quoting it, right? Does everybody follow so far? Okay. Now what he's done, though, is he's modified it. In other words, in Hebrews 3, he just quoted Psalm 95. So look, what I'm doing here is huge for how you understand the Bible. And I don't think it's just for my seminary students. So if I can make this clear to you this week, next week, I started to loosen up the soil last week in talking about metalepsis and illusion competence. So now I'm adding to that. It's not too hard. We do this naturally all the time. We just don't talk about it and stand back and describe it. What he's done is, he's quoting Psalm 95 and it's all about entering the rest. You guys didn't listen. And you know what? You're so disobedient, you're in jeopardy of not entering the rest. And then he says, well, what is the rest? It wasn't just Canaan. Canaan is just a type of the world to come. Joshua couldn't help them enter the rest. Uh, they needed a newer Joshua, a higher level Joshua, namely the Messiah, to help them enter the real rest, which is not a little geopolitical Disneyland plot of land in the Middle East. It's heaven itself, the Apostle Paul says, right? So what he inserts is Genesis 2.2, which is interesting because that's about the seventh day. Every other day of creation ends with the refrain, morning and evening, 
day one. Morning and evening, day two. Guess what day does not have the reframe? Seventh day. Morning and evening? No, there is, there is nothing like that. Why? Because we're still in the Sabbath, so to speak. We haven't entered into the final Sabbath rest. That's open-ended until Jesus comes back and ushers us into the New Jerusalem. So that's an open-ended day, so to speak. Okay? Well, that's a modification. So now what the writer to Hebrews has done is he's taken Psalm 95 and he's ratcheted up the whole discussion by inserting Genesis 2, uh, 2 there. And uh, he basically uh, says, somewhere, somewhere, somebody said the seventh day in this way. He knows it's Moses. <laughs> the magisterial creation account. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Okay? And, and, and um, so he modifies it. Now what he does is, by doing this, look at the center box. He creates an intertext. See, by doing that, the way he's modified the quote, he's not rewritten Moses. He's bringing out the full meaning of Moses. But he's modified it, and so now the quote in the Hebrews text does not exactly equal the quote that was in the pretext. It's something different. It's another animal. That guess what? Needs you, the Christian, with the Holy Spirit, to read it. He's communicating something to you. Put this together. I just inserted Genesis 2-2 because I want you to understand Canaan's not the rest. <laughs> it's something greater. And so you're to infer, oh, conclusion, rest is spiritual, totally future. The world to come in which we will rest from our wilderness works if we persevere in faith. Now this makes some conservative Christians very uncomfortable because it sounds kind of like a reader response thing, like you're the generator of the meaning. Well, there is a sense in which you are the generator of the meaning within a canonical context under the inspiration of the Spirit illumining the little authorial keys that the human and divine author has just given you. Because by modifying the quote with Genesis 2-2, say, they did not enter the rest, and by the way, if you follow them and you do not listen, you will not enter the rest. And uh, by modifying it uh, to show them that that's the case, uh, what he's done is created an intertext for them to engage and think through. It becomes somewhat like, I suppose, and then I'll end, somewhat respect the time. Be somewhat like, I suppose, this morning when I went through the first two points. Nothing escapes you up there as far as nonverbals. I could have dropped a pin this morning uh, at the end of the first two points. Why? Because it's all about law. <laughs> it's all about how God, you know, how, how we uh, are tempted and fall into temptation. I have no idea what's going on between your ears. Maybe somebody out in the audience is thinking about their involvement with porn. Maybe somebody out in the audience is thinking about being short-tempered with their wife. I don't know, but I'm sure that's what's going on, you see. And so this is more of a like relational approach to communication and how God actually uses his word to engage us. We're not generating the meaning apart from God or apart from the scripture, but meaning is generated 
uh, in dialogue with human beings. I can see this is all as clear as mud. <laughs> Hold on to this sheet and bring it back next week, okay? both the continuity and the discontinuities. So it's all one covenant of grace. God, people were saved in the Old Testament, same way they were in the New Testament. Okay? They believe in a Messiah to come. We believe in a Messiah who has come. And the writer to Hebrews is not rewriting uh, uh, the psalmist. He's not rewriting Moses. He is teasing out the fuller meaning through time and through redemptive history. That's right. But that's not just because I'm a seminary professor. We all have this in our confessions. We all have, that's exactly right. So, you know, um, you know he studied under a really smart guy down at UCSD, uh, Hebrew Bible. But you know what? You all can know more about the Hebrew Bible than this Harvard-trained uh, uh, bib scholar down at UCSD at times. Why? Because you have the confessional categories that help keep you within, you're exactly right, James, exact, you know, uh, keep you within a proper interpretation. Because with what I show you, you can't just walk away with any uh, inference. It has to be legitimate, and it has to be entailed by good and necessary inference. But you're absolutely right. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time, and uh, we pray that you uh, would continue to edify us, both as we look at the milk and the meat of your word, and bring us into ever and ever thicker understandings of your word, uh, not just so we could be puffed up, oh uh, Lord, uh, uh, may it never be that that's the case, but rather that we could be strengthened in our most holy faith and also strengthen others in our conversation and in our encouragement. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you all later next week. Uh, Psalm 82 is out there on the paper. If you want to pick that up, we can talk about that uh, next week.